it is definitely good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know Garrison more over the last couple of years, and so when he called and asked me if I would want to come preach, I was thrilled with the opportunity. I gave him one stipulation, though. I hate having to choose what I'm going to preach on. So I said, if I'm going to come and preach, you got to just tell me what to preach on. And so he said, you guys are going through the Beatitudes, and uh, so we're going to continue in that this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 9, specifically of the peacemakers. So you can kind of start turning to that or finding that if you'd like to. Uh, it was good for me um, to be able to know that and then to be able to go back and listen to the audio because I have really enjoyed listening to the beginning of this series kind of building up to today. A uh, little intimidated because I, I didn't get to hear him preach during the assessment. I thought, young guy, hasn't been in ministry that long, bar will be kind of low, and then I'm listening and I'm like, daggone it, he can preach, right? And so I, kn- I knew I had to like actually have some coffee and try and bring my A-game this morning. Um, but also, like listening to the, this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the unpacking of uh, the Beatitudes has just been good for my soul. It's been encouraging to me and uh, has, has blessed me in the midst of that. So that's, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, you know, he mentioned I've, I've been at Greenville for 17 years now. My wife and I have been in ministry for 22 years, and that's as long as we've been married. And uh, I'm looking at the Beatitudes that he gives me and realize he gave me the peacemakers. And uh, unfortunately, I did bring three of my four kids with me today that you could quiz and ask, and they would probably tell you I'm not the best at being the peacemaker. Uh, and so I'm thinking, oh man, do I really have to be convicted by the text as well, right? But realizing that the authority to be able to share with you this morning is not on my resume or my qualifications. I am certainly not here with you this morning to say, hey, I've arrived. And so listen and learn from me. But instead, our authority is the Word of God, right? And our authority is Jesus Christ as He is revealed to us in the Word of God. And so we can come together this morning acknowledging where we've fallen short, seeing the glory of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ, and then as we are united with Christ, receiving that call then to be able to walk uh, as peacemakers. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, if you would stand with me. If the Word of God is our authority, then we want to give you an opportunity uh, to be able to stand and hear the Word of the Lord for us this morning, knowing these are the very words of God that He has given to us. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, the Word of God reads, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. One of the things I've really appreciated listening to the messages you guys have already had in this series is, is kind of how the Beatitudes have been described for us. 
right? They're not commands given to us that are these impossible standards that God is saying, okay, uh, here's what it should be. You stink. You can't accomplish this yourselves. And so just hear the command and feel just total weight under it of your inability, right? That's not what's happening in the Beatitudes. The, the Beatitudes are also not kind of these conditional blessing statements of if you will do these things, then you shall receive these things, right? No, they're given to us, and I think some of the phrases you guys have been using of congratulatory description of those who are living in a state of blessing, but it's also an, an invitation to join in that state of blessing, right? And so it's, it's, it, you're, you're living the good life if you're living these things, and you're inviting others then into it as well. It's already been mentioned, we prayed for it. it's Father's Day, the privilege of having four kids, been a dad now for 17 years, and I know I have a responsibility to embarrass them, right? I mean, it's just my job. If I'm going to stand up here on stage and not do anything that gets an eye roll, I have failed as a father. And so I was thinking through, what do these Beatitudes look like? And I realized, really, it should just say, yeet are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, right? Right, kid? Hmm? Yeah? No? Man. All right. Tried. Here's what we're really going to do, though, as we work through the message this morning. We're going to look at kind of three things that you can kind of follow along with us on what the, the outline is going to kind of be. We're going to talk about what it is to be doing peace. It's going to be defining what Jesus meant by us being peacemakers, we're going to talk about the context for peace. Who is it in which we seek to be at peace and live in peace together with? And then we're lastly going to talk about the victory of peace. What is in the statement that Jesus is making that we shall be called sons of God? And I think there's a, a beautiful answer to some of the struggle that we have with being people who are peacemakers, and we're going to find that together. I don't know if how many of you have been introduced to this idea before or heard the term? Uh, when I first started kind of looking into some biblical counseling things, I was introduced to a book called Peacemakers by Ken Sandy. And uh, actually, it's a, it's a great book on like how to seek reconciliation, how to work through issues of conflict, uh, really designed with the intention of saying, you know, 1 Corinthians tells us that Christians shouldn't be taking each other to court and suing each other. That's a bad testimony in front of the, the secular world. And so he kind of created uh, what ended up becoming an entire ministry out of it where they do mediation for people, and they, they go and they meet with two Christians, maybe two Christian business owners that aren't on the same page in a contract they had, and they, they help them settle it as believers outside of the court system. And so for me, when I read Blessed are the Peacemakers, I almost immediately start picturing Ken Sandy and, and the book and kind of the process. And you know, I'd be thinking, Danny, we don't care about your word association processes, right? Why are you telling us this? Well, there's an interesting thing that I think helps even lay out this idea of, of peacemakers and why I think we're going we're gonna to use a phrase called peace doers. And I think it, it makes a little more sense. And let me, let me unpack why. It, the interesting thing is, is if you have a conflict with somebody and you want to take them to court, you take them to court. And because you took them to court, they don't have any option. They got to show up to court too right? They become compelled and forced to show up. This idea of biblical mediation, uh, it, it looks different than that. 
Because it, it doesn't actually have the authority of the government behind it. And so if you're going to seek to reconcile an issue, if you're going to go to somebody and say, man, we're having massive problems here, and normally somebody might take someone else to court to try and get their money or their contract or their stuff back or whatever it might be. But I'm proposing we sit down with a Christian mediator who helps us kind of come to terms together. They can't force you to do that. They can't obligate or compel you to do that. Both sides have to agree to that idea. And in that sense, I think we can feel a tension of saying, when we're reading this and the English translates it for us, of saying, blessed are the peacemakers, because we feel that tension immediately of the fact that sometimes we can't actually make peace, right? This morning, I think it, it can be helpful for us instead to say, blessed are the peace doers. See, that's really the Greek construction of peacemakers. What's translated for us is just a compound word, one of which is the word for peace, and the other is the word for doer. And so it's really, it's, it, it's, it feels clunky to us, right? We don't ever talk about being peace doers. But the idea really can come across for us is, blessed are the peace doers, for they shall be called sons of God. I think this grabs a hold a little bit of the idea of what Paul is saying in Romans 12. When in Romans 12, verse 18, he says to us, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If possible, as much as it depends on you, you do your part to live at peace with all men. But that brings the obvious element to it that that does not mean the other person might naturally respond in like In fact, you have the opportunity to respond, to act, to choose, to speak words of peace, but you do not have the actual opportunity to create peace. You can't make a situation peaceful if the other person does not want to also participate in that as well. But hear me on this. This this doesn't mean then that peace is passivity, right? Blessed are the peace doers doesn't just mean, you know, you, you just kind of avoid all conflict by all means. You don't step into any situations. You just kind of let everything roll off of you and you don't really care or get involved. No, peace doing is not an issue of avoiding conflict at all costs or doing nothing about it. Peace doers are people who seek to bring peace into situations. And again, this is incredibly tricky if the other person isn't responding with peace or if the scenario, the the situation that you're in is not a peaceful situation. I know you guys briefly mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but I think it's an an interesting case study to just kind of look at it as a couple weeks ago when the, the KKK came here to Dayton. And they're not giving a message of peace, right? It is a message of discord and conflict and hate. And so that we knew they were coming and people were kind of preparing for their arrival. And so people even started making signs and posters and there were banners up on buildings and different things that were out that were making it known that though the rally was coming here to Dayton, it did not mean Dayton backed the message of the rally. And so you saw signs all over the place. Some of them, I am a, a huge advocate of the fact that if it's going to be poetry, it better rhyme and so, you know, I love the one that just said, you know, get your hatin' out of Dayton. I thought that one was like, that did the job right there, right? 
But other people had ones, you know, hate is not welcome or we choose to love or some things like that that were a little bit more of, of kind of some generic statements. But then what was interesting is I, I'm a relative who lives here in Dayton and, and kind of right in the middle of all of this. And, and so they posted on social media kind of how proud they were of how Dayton responded to, to making it known that we don't back that kind of message. We don't care for that kind of hate. We don't want to be divisive like that. And so I started clicking through the pictures. And honestly, I was going to make a slide of these, but I ran into a tension of it. Of you had some of the, the pictures that just said things like, get your hating out of Dayton and stuff like that. But then there were others where they're using vulgarity to tell the KKK what they think of their message. Some of these signs were hate-filled themselves as they were talking about how they didn't have any tolerance for anybody who holds to a message of hate. They were filled with some veiled threats and sometimes not so veiled threats about what they thought about the message the KKK was bringing. And it was fascinating to, to kind of read along with this and go, wait a minute, it is good to want to step into a situation and say, no, this is wrong, this is, this is hateful, this is bringing discord, this is, this is bringing conflict into the situation. But isn't it fascinating how often you and I are tempted, even in trying to preserve or generate peace, we do it in some of the same hate-filled ways. We can be tempted to resort to actually the world's methods, right, in the midst, and our, our, our hate kind of comes out of it. Probably wouldn't be fair for me if we don't kind of define this, this piece a little bit better of, of what, are we, what are we talking about when we look at this. I know uh, when we're talking about living this good life, living the life that God has designed and created us for, the, the natural parallel is kind of drawing back to the Old Testament and that, that concept of shalom, right? And that shalom is not just, uh, you know, military peace that the nation of Israel eventually got kind of under David and Solomon. It's not just relational peace, which quite honestly, I don't know David ever got to, but it's, you know, it's not any of those things. It's, it incorporates those things, but it's more than that. It's a harmony of our life. It's, it's this peace of, uh, that, we, that we have of, a, of flourishing, That's why I like even the series of just kind of referring to it as as we're flourishing as we're living in this, right? Now, shalom is the Old Testament word for peace. And so when we get into the New Testament, Jesus isn't using the word shalom right here because he's, uh, what we have recorded for us is the Greek, it's not the Hebrew. But the interesting thing is if you go into what's called the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word they choose to replace shalom with is the same word that's the beginning of being a, a peace doer. And so this concept of peace is going farther than just saying, uh, you know, if you were here in 1776, you should have been running down the streets just trying to get, you know, the British and the Americans to sing Kumbaya and hold hands and let's not, you know, fight against this. And it's not just, you know, those kind of dynamics, but it's really going further than that, that this message of peace has to take us back to a vision of what the world looked like before sin entered the world. And it should also draw our eyes forward to the vision that we know is coming when Christ will restore and redeem all things. This vision of peace requires the gospel at the center of it. 
This should, this should drive our understanding of what we're talking about when we're even speaking of peace. And so, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to go a few, few pages further back. To Romans chapter 5, I'm going to kind of lay out a little bit of what this, this message of peace really looks like, which will then kind of get us into this understanding of what is our, our context of peace, who, who should we be showing peace toward, and, and where is our peace found? Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 1, and then we're going to jump down and read verses 6 to 10 together as well. But verse 1, Paul says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's slide down to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we were, if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now may we be reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Our peace was fractured by sin. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They had fellowship and and communed with God. But as soon as sin entered into the world, they immediately felt the effects of this, this distance, this discord between them and God. And sin is not just that you and I mess up, we do some things we wish we wouldn't do, we all make mistakes, right? To err is human. Sin is rebellion. Sin is going against the very commands and violating the very nature of God. And so Paul would even use such strong words here as to say that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. You know, it's tempting for us to remember like, and think about it in a sense of like, well, yeah, my sins, I'm sure, are pretty annoying to God, and I know I kind of can do some things wrong, but I feel like, you know, I'm, I, I'm good with God, and as long as he's good with me, I think we're, we're probably okay. Well, the, the Bible actually teaches that outside of the gospel, you find yourself in a place of being the enemy of God, both that your actions declare that you are in rebellion against God, but also in the way God views you. That he, as he sees you in your sin, you are in rebellion against him. You're an adversary of his. And yet what happens? While we were his enemies, we didn't take the first step. We didn't apologize and say, hey, I get it. This is wrong. We didn't do the, hey, you know, I kind of feel like things have gotten a little awkward between us. Could we just start over? No, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin took on our sin so that the punishment for our sin and so that the the bearing of that sin itself would be removed from us and his righteous life 
could then be given to us. We become reconciled to God. We, that, that relationship which had become adversarial is now brought to a place where it actually can be healthy and whole again because our sin has been taken care of and now his righteousness has been placed upon us so we then stand before God in right place. This is where our, our peace conversation first has to start. That we must first recognize that we can't create peace. We can't make peace before God. God has made peace for us. And so those who are peace doers first have to know and experience the peace that is given to them through Jesus Christ and is given to us toward the Father. From that then it flows that as we have received peace from God, then we are capable of then showing peace toward others. I think the, the Beatitudes are so compelling to me, and they're just, they're interesting to dwell in because uh, they're, they're not easy, right? They're, they're challenging and convicting for us, but they're not complicated either. And one of the things that's fascinating when you get into a list like this with the Beatitudes is that oftentimes we can feel like as we're, we're kind of working through certain lists, something will feel contradictory to another, you know, of, of you're, you're, you're to be bold, but you're also to be gentle. You're to be loving, but you're also supposed to be truthful. You're to, and those things aren't actually in conflict, but oftentimes in our lives, because of the experiences we've had, they feel like there's a little bit of a tension there, right? The Beatitudes don't really do that. I mean, just hear the list. The poor in spirit. When you think about it in, in regard to being a peace doer, yes, someone who is not puffed up or arrogant or boastful or, or totally kind of centered on themselves and exalting themselves, but one who is truly poor in spirit feeds right into being a peace doer with other people. Someone who mourns over sin. And it's not just mourning over the sin that other people have committed, right? It's also mourning over my sin, but in the same sort of way, it's also not just mourning only about my sin, but it's looking at the pain and the heartache and, and the wickedness that happens in this world, the injustice that happen, and it breaks our hearts over that as well. And so we, we come with this, this posture of this recognition that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And this leads to the mindset of a, a peace doer. Hunger and thirst for righteousness Man, this drives us to the fact that our, our motivation in this is not just about pragmatics. It's not just about what I can create or the environment I can have. I'm not a peace doer simply just so I can try and have a, a more enjoyable scenario or situation I'm in. I am driven by this hunger for God's righteousness, for this desire as we pray that we would see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven someone who's merciful. Man, you can't, you can't bring about peace. You can't respond peaceably towards somebody when you're hypercritical, judgmental, lacking any grace toward them. But again, if you're aware of your own sin, then you enter into the situation knowing that I've received much mercy, and so then I also afford much mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
I mean, do you see how all of these just kind of flow together? They, 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 if you made a Venn diagram, they really have a lot of places where they overlap with each other, right? They're not just these separate, isolated categories. We feel like, man, they, they run in conflict to each other in some places, and we kind of have to work through these. It almost feels like Jesus wouldn't have needed to say, blessed are the peace doers, if we just had the rest of this list, Right? But it helps bring another piece of nuance to it. It helps us kind of look at the angle of the diamond slightly different and see a different way that it shimmers for us. And yet this gets us back to that very same issue again, then that we are people who, as we, we seek to be this kind of person, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, that we would then respond to others out of that. And yet, wow, verse 10 makes us clear to us that that does not mean that the world will always respond back to us in kind. No, in fact, Jesus anticipates for us that as you seek to be a peace doer, you will find conflict, you will find resistance, you will even find persecution. There will be hostility there. Why? You think about that, you go, that's ridiculous. Why would there be hostility toward trying to bring peace into a situation? I mean, who, who, who really wants to say, man, I, I just don't want tranquility. I want, I want pain. I want conflict. I want irritation. See, the issue isn't the vision of peace. The issue isn't that it's too hard for us to comprehend or understand what Jesus is even calling for here. The issue is, is we want it in certain ways, and we're often tempted to go outside of God's desired ways to try and accomplish that purpose. Dad, is, is there any more challenging test field for this than parenting? You have been commissioned, according to Ephesians 6, to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so you get these visions of like, we're going to do, I mean, you know, I'm a pastor, I've got four kids. At one point, they were four kids, five and under, you know, so you got these just little things at the table with you, and we're going to do devotions, and I'm going to teach my kids like the Westminster Catechism. I actually was naive enough to think at, at one point I would teach my, my kids Greek as they were like young, because languages are easier for young people, and I realized you kind of have to know it first before you teach it, but... Also, like, we'd sit down at the kitchen table for dinner together, and it'd be like, all right, I'm going to do this awesome time of devotions. And as you're getting ready to unpack God's Word, just a couple different things, you even got a little illustration you think will keep their attention, that's when somebody starts punching their sibling. And that's when somebody else decides they've discovered the noises their armpit can make, right? And that's when someone else is shoving peas up their nose. And, you know, and you're going, this is not what I had envisioned, and the instruction part is difficult, right? And the discipline. Discipline brings with it the idea of there's going to have to be correction, right? And so, Dad, what happens when we, we step into disciplining our kids? Is our discipline fueled by a desire for them to grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it 
often driven by something else. I remember reading Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, and feeling completely convicted when he said, you know, so often as parents, the reason why the motivation for disciplining our children is annoyance or embarrassment. We let them do something until it's driven us nuts, and then we do something about it. Or we let them do something until they do it in front of the neighbor, and then we're kind of embarrassed by it, and we've got to correct it because that's going to look bad on us. And that so often my motivation for correction is not just built in saying, wow, God's given me these, these disciples that I'm supposed to be training and raising up. But it, but it becomes complicated, right? Because, I mean, Ephesians 6 is even letting us know that complication is going to be there. Because if you're raising your children in the discipline of the Lord, there's going to be times where you're having to look at them and say, this is God's standard and you are not meeting it. This is what God desires and you're falling short of it. This is the, the conflict and I have been brought into this situation to try and bring you to see light and truth and what it is to have fellowship with God. And yet, in the midst of trying to call them toward the glory of God, there's also this tainting of they violated the glory of Danny. And I feel this tension working together. It's tangled up for me because as I'm seeking to be a peace doer, my heart is not simply focused on their peace with God and our peace together, but it starts to become focused on my own personal glory. A couple weeks ago, I was in Louisville for a, a small Sojourn Network event they were doing, and one of our pastors there, Jamal Williams, was sharing some brief thoughts, and he actually went to the Beatitudes. So when you know you're going to be preaching, you're ready to steal, right? So I had my pen out, and I was listening carefully, because when he got to this one, Blessed are the Peacemakers, he was kind of doing this thing where he said, you know, what if the world wrote these Beatitudes? What would they sound like? And I thought this was so poignant when he said this. He said, blessed are the warriors, for it's the victors who write the history books. Blessed are the warriors, for it is the victors who write the history books. And I realized at that moment that that's, that's 100% what causes me so often to not be a peace doer, is my own quest for vindication and my own desire to establish my position. And so even as a dad, when I respond to my kids, and I fail miserably at this, of being responding as a peace doer, I have to come to the conclusion, I come to the recognition, why, why is this a struggle for me? Because I am consumed with not that you have violated what God desires for you. I'm going, how could they do this? They know what I want. How could they not? Deserve, how are they not just seeing me as this honorable father who they find no other pleasure than to, to bring him maximum joy and for the world to see what a great dad I am, right? Why, why are they not listening and, and knowing the fountain of wisdom they could be gaining from? I mean, I got these gray hairs because of them. Why don't they acknowledge then what they, what they accomplish, right? It's my quest. I can't be someone who is all about bringing glory to God when I'm also trying to bring about my own exaltation. And I can't be a peace doer who is bringing my peace that has come from God into the situation when I am also trying to elevate myself above others who are in my midst. 
And this is why I love the solution that Jesus actually gives here. You know, it's so fascinating. I know you guys have kind of already talked about this a bit, but the, that the Beatitudes are kind of sandwiched together, that he begins by, by describing a, a present tense kind of blessing there, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we've got six of them that are kind of in the future tense, and then another one that kind of wraps up in the present tense. So we find ourselves with blessed are the peace doers in one of these that's present ten, or uh, future tense oriented. And that might trouble us for a second. So wait a minute. For they shall be called sons of God? They shall be? This is, this is coming in the future? Like, isn't this our present tense hope now? That the, the reconciliation we have received from God means we became a child of God. We became, uh, Jesus is our bigger brother, right? And we have been adopted into the family. We can cry out, Abba, Father, to God. Why is this put in the future tense? Well, it's not placing it in the future tense to say that you are not yet a child of God. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are currently a child of God. So this is not something that it's being said that it's being held off for a future time to be a reality. Now, I think the, the word called kind of draws our attention to it a little bit. When we read it in the English, it almost feels secondary to us. Blessed are the peace doers, for they shall be called sons of God. Like if I'm writing this, if Jesus would have come to me as an editor and said, how would, how would you like me to craft this? I'd have said, well, that's good, Jesus, but I got a better idea, right? Like I think it would be stronger if you said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Like leave the called out of it. Because in our world, what happens? We have the argument in our home every once in a while. Like, this is one of those fun ones as a dad to deal with. Dad, yeah, so-and-so's insulting me again. Okay, what did they say? They said I'm smart. Okay, stop calling your sibling smart, right? Like, I mean, what are you supposed to do with that? But, but what are they doing? They're, they're doing it with a tone that is saying, I'm calling you smart right now, but I really think you're an idiot right? That's, that's what's happening there. And that's, that's the world we, we live in, right? Where you can call somebody something, but it doesn't mean you actually think that's their essence. That's their reality. So if we just kind of read it only in the English like that, it kind of feels secondary to us of like, well, thanks Jesus for calling me a son of God, but I'd rather be one than just kind of have the, the name thrown at me, right? Now the word called there is a stronger word than just kind of a naming. It's an actually, it's, it's, it's a declaration. It's a choosing. It's, it's to, to officially been deemed this. And I love the fact the way things kind of tie in together. We as a church are going through the book of Hebrews. And so I think this called idea really comes out in the first couple chapters of Hebrews. Because the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, and he just kind of keeps cramming them into the conversation and throwing verses out back and forth from them kind of together. And when you put those two psalms together and you take what the author of Hebrews is saying, you'll find that he actually is, is describing this time when the exalted Jesus is coming and sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
And his enemies, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He has accomplished his work. His work is finished. He may now then sit as God begins this process of bringing all things under his feet in a way that the the world will recognize it, right? And yet in the midst of those scenarios where he's drawing Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 together, he also says this, today I have decreed you are my son. Now, we can again be tempted from that to go, wow, okay, so Jesus went and did what the Father desired, and he lived a perfect life, and then he was willing to die on the cross, and he was raised from the dead, he ascends back up into heaven, and because he did his job, God's looking at him going, all right, I'll call you my boy. You're my son. I'm not embarrassed by that. No, that's not what's happening at all. So we have to remind ourselves of this even for Father's Day. Fatherhood was not invented when Eve gave birth to Cain. It's not the first time we see fatherhood. It's not that God says, call me father and call Jesus the son because I think it can be really illustrated well for you dads. You'll get the picture, right? No, eternally he has been the father and eternally he has been the son. And so when Eve gives birth to Cain, God is looking at that and saying, okay, humans, now you have an illustration of what we're talking about. Dads, we're the illustration. When we call God our heavenly father, that's not, oh, here's an idea of who God is. We can kind of grasp with a human illustration. No, our fatherhood that we live out is the illustration of what's taking place. And so what Hebrews actually unpacks for us is when God says, you are my son, he is giving Jesus the greatest title of exaltation he can ever receive. He is bestowing on him this great glory and honor to him. There's nothing greater, right? Wow, you can be a king, you can be a prophet, you can be a strong warrior, you could be all of these different things and all of those titles fall under son of God. Like you're not doing better than that, right? That's the great title that there is. And so when we find ourselves united in Christ through the gospel, then we find ourselves in a place where this title then is also bestowed upon us. Not that we earn it, right? And so then God is willing to call us that. No, it's that God has now decreed God has given to his children a title that is beyond any other degree of exaltation. And so, how am I set free as someone who seeks to do peace around other people? What can fight against this temptation I have to exalt myself, to make much of myself, to try and intermingle the glory of God a little bit with the glory of my own, is when I can totally release this over here. And I can say, I don't have to work toward the exaltation. I can be a peace doer, and even if people are not responding back to me peaceably, I don't have to try and win them over and prove that my way is right or somehow try and gain an admiration or an understanding from them because I understand God has already promised to exalt me. We find ourselves then as we're united with Christ, understanding that Jesus has walked perfectly this road of being a peace doer. 
we see in ourselves than our temptations to walk away from Jesus' means of doing peace. But we are refreshed and reminded again that he won't let us go. And he draws us back in. He has done the work of peace for us. And by his work that he has done, he has made peace with God possible for you and I. He becomes our way of peace. One of the beautiful things that immediately happens in the early church is they realize this division they suffered between Jews and Gentiles is completely done away with because we find ourselves one in Christ. And he perfectly shows us the way of peace, right? As the world reviles him and mocks him and condemns him and kills him. And yet he offers peace. And he allows us to rest in the victory. We're not people that have to jockey for position or fight any longer. And we're also people then who can go before our Father when we recognize we've grabbed a hold of the world's methods of creating peace. And we can go to him and confess. And we can experience again the peace that we have with God and be refreshed again that our ultimate exaltation is not based on our performance or how we do, but it's based on what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we... We're so thankful we can come into a room together and we can read scriptures and we can sing songs and we can acknowledge that we sin. Father, when Adam and Eve hid and covered themselves and thought distance from you was the only second solution they could find, God, I thank you, you were not content with that. But you came and found them and you sought them out, and you revealed yourself to them, and you revealed your plan to them. And so, Lord, we are a people who are here today acknowledging we live in a world of strife, and that has happened unto us at times, but, God, we are also a people who confess we have brought strife with us. And, Lord, we see people warring against your ways and pushing back against things and creating conflict. And Lord, we confess oftentimes we find that because we desire to walk according to what your word declares, we, we find ourselves even being accused of bringing the conflict. Help us to respond with peace, not with passivity, not with distance. Lord, help us to faithfully, boldly, Declare the peace that is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ. But Lord, when it's pushed against, when it's not received, when we're persecuted, Lord, release us from jockeying for position. Release us from personal offense as we instead trust you are the one who has granted us peace, you are the only one who can truly make peace and you are bringing peace to us. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.